Amen. So our passage today, we're continuing where we left off in First and Second Chronicles chapter 1 from verses 12 to 22. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? Second Corinthians chapter 12, uh, two, one, I'm sorry. Second Corinthians chapter one, verses 12 to 22. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And supremely so toward you, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and have you send me back, send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Amen. We're going to stop there at verse 22. This is God's word. You can be seated. So we have, uh, as we've seen in 1 Corinthians and now in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, these kind of divisions and competitions are one way the enemy of the church can get in uh, and, and hinder the effectiveness of the local church and its ministry. Our own pride can be the foothold that Satan uses to get us to walk after the flesh and not after the spirit. So once we've declared that we that where we stand, it's often challenged by others. You know, you you let your family know or or your neighbors know that you're you're a follower of Jesus or they see you get up every morning and go to church on on Sunday mornings and they go oh, they're Christians. But once you make that stand, um, then it's going to get challenged. Sometimes in the church, we, we have an idea or we have a, a belief and it conflicts with other people's beliefs. And so when it does, maybe your neighbors are trying to argue with you about this or that uh, theological perspective and you take a stand, right? And sometimes our stand isn't always based on the word of God. Sometimes it's on our opinion. And then our pride gets in the way. We dig our heels in and we want to be right. Not we want them to know Jesus or his love for us, but we want to be right. 
whether it's in the church or in our neighborhood or whatever, and then this conflict arises, and then there's division, and then you want to get other people on your side to prove that you're right because your ego really would like you to be right and for others to affirm that you are right, and then the division grows. And that happens in churches all the time. It's one of the main reasons churches split is because people get on two sides of an often insignificant issue. And they dig their heels in, and neither will back down or humble themselves or try to find common ground. So Paul is dealing with this, this fruit of, of, that's an ungodly fruit of factions. In, in the fruits of the flesh, in Galatians chapter 5, it lists factions as one of the fruits of the flesh. And Paul dealt with this in his first letter, but now he deals with some of the Corinthians' personal rejections of him. These detractors pointed to the fact that, that Paul didn't come when he suggested that he might come, which was after he went to Macedonia. Instead, he came before, and so they, they say, yeah, he's going back and forth, he's flopping around, he doesn't know what he's doing. They claim he says one thing and then does another. And so Paul had to defend his actions, but Paul was doing it not out of pride, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, but rather for the sake of the gospel that he was proclaiming. Because he was the founder of the church, because he was their source of what the gospel meant, he was the first one planning the church, they needed to know that his original message to them was the true and pure gospel of Christ. Verse 12 again. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. When at a later time, Paul's going to, um, he's going to be in the temple, he's going to be uh, accused of things he didn't do, and he's brought before the Jewish ruling council, he's going to claim that his entire life was lived according to his conscience. And that's really informative, for Paul tells us later in a, a letter to Timothy that he's the chief of sinners. So we have this d dilemma. How can he always live according to his conscience and yet be such a great sinner and the apostle? Later on, he'll tell us uh, that he did what he did because he was misinformed. And that misinformation caused his conscience to be skewed. But after meeting the resurrected Christ, his conscience changed, and he became a proclaimer of Christ. Paul explains that what he did to Christians was done in ignorance. He truly thought he was protecting Judaism. He was living according to his conscience. So I believe we can conclude from Paul's statements that we should live according to our conscience, but that we should be open to having our minds informed by the word of God, by the Holy Spirit, which can change our convictions. What you're convinced of is right today on, on these, now I'm not talking about the core biblical beliefs, but on peripheral beliefs or, or personal convictions, 
you may realize in the future as you read God's word or, or as you pray about a situation, you might realize that you're not right and your conviction can change. But a, acting according to your conscience is always better than violating your conscience. Better heresy of doctrine than heresy of heart. Paul's boast to the Corinthians was that regarding his behavior towards them, his conscience was clear. He always acted in a way that he believed was upright. Despite accusations against him, the testimony of his conscience vindicated him. He explained that his team always acted with simplicity. There's a variation in the ancient text, the manuscripts. Instead of simplicity, some manuscripts have holiness. In Greek, the, word, the two words are very similar. Simplicity implies sincerity, whereas holiness implies sanctity. The meanings, of course, somewhat overlap. It's to be entirely honest. Later in this letter, Paul will tell them in, first, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Some itinerant ministers must have gone through Corinth and, and have been acting in a deceitful way for personal gain. But, but Paul says his team abhors that kind of behavior and asks them to judge in their own conscience, in the sight of God, whether they had acted sincerely among them or not. Had they ever seen him use deceitful means or taken advantage of them monetarily? In fact, he went to the opposite extreme and wouldn't refuse to accept any support from the Corinthians because I think he probably suspected that there was this underlying thing of suspicion that he was out for personal gain. So he worked. He would preach and teach during the day. The Greek culture had this like a long siesta time in the afternoon, like some European cultures still have today. So he would teach in the morning during, or I'm sorry, he'd work in the morning at his leather craft. Then during that long siesta time, he would teach and preach. And then once that was over, he'd go back to work, supporting himself, making his own way. So he's asking them, come on, look at your conscience. Remember how I acted among you. I never took advantage of you. He knew that if they were honest, they would reject these accusations against him. He was always honest and truthful to the Corinthians. And then he adds that his testimony was of godly sincerity. This has the same kind of nuance as the previous description. It's also translated by another translator as purity of motive before God. He concludes the description of his testimony by saying that it was not with earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God that he proclaimed the message. And this reminds us of a phrase from his first letter, chapter two, verse four, where he says his speech and his preaching wasn't with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That was God's grace supremely demonstrated for the Corinthians. 
And this is what makes the difference in, in preaching and proclaiming the word. Man's efforts or God's grace upon the speaker. Men can be trained to be eloquent speakers. They study to carefully understand the text they're to preach. They learn to diagram the Greek sentence structure. But in the end, it's the grace of God upon the message and the hearers that makes the difference. The willingness of the one who proclaims the message to say what the Spirit is prompting him or her to say. Paul ends the verse by saying God's grace was supremely manifest to them. They were witnesses of that grace coming through Paul. Many years ago, um, I had to preach two sermons back to back because of the size of the congregation. So we had an early service and a later service. And the two messages, though the manuscripts were the same, they, it never felt the same. It always felt completely different in each service. And I don't really know why. I think possibly it's because the hearers, uh, for some reason, God had more grace upon them. Maybe they were hungrier. Maybe they came with a heart that was more eager to hear. I, and I often thought one, the first service was more powerful than the second service or vice versa. But sometimes when I talked to the people, it seemed that the effect was the opposite of what I thought. Eloquence and knowledge affect the mind and the emotions, but God's spirit is what moves the hearts. Manifest grace was Paul's testimony. His defense is to remind them of the grace of God in his ministry, thereby giving God all the glory. Verse 13 and 14, for we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Paul refers to a letter written in between his first one and this second one that uh, we sometimes refer to as the severe letter, a letter that we don't have. It's been lost to history. They had apparently in part received those rebukes in that letter, that, that lost letter, and the instructions that Paul gave them in that letter. But now he wants them to fully understand the reason for it. Grace often comes in the form of discipline. Paul wanted the Corinthians to fully realize what was God was doing through his ministry with them. And while they had been boasting in their favorite speaker, Apollos or Cephas, or the special gifts of the spirit that they had, what matters in light of, under, of eternity is knowing and understanding God. Paul's referring back to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, where we are told not to boast in wisdom or strength or, or riches, but rather to boast in knowing the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness. Those are the things that God delights in. Boasting in oneself is, is sinful. Instead, Paul wanted them to boast in how God was using him to lavish the grace of God on them. 
and for Paul to boast in how they received and acted on that grace. They could boast in the kindness of God and what he was doing through Paul for them rather than in themselves. So we can apply that in our own church. We shouldn't boast in the elders, but on the grace of God expressed through them for your growth in Christ. We boast in the testimonies. We, the elders, boast in the testimonies we see in you, the changes that God brings about in your life. When somebody asks me, you know, I have friends in other cities and countries, and they ask me, how's the church going in Sedona? And I tell them about your lives and how your lives are changing, how the Holy Spirit of God is working in you and, and transforming you. That's what we boast in. I tell them of your generosity to missions, your contributions to one another, which is an expression of God's grace through our lives. And then God gets all the glory. Without his grace, we could do nothing. And that's what Paul wanted to remind them in these letters and help them fully understand. While we do that now, Paul is pointing forward to a day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious day that we just sang about. I think all we will be talking about in that glorious day is the grace of God. The grace of God that came to us through his servants, the grace of God we received and how it transformed our lives and the grace of God we were able to extend to others. That is ultimately boasting in the Lord, in his goodness, in his kindness towards us. It's also boasting in his justice and righteousness because Jesus paid our sin debt. Verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Paul had seen God's grace flowing out to the Corinthians as he taught and as he wrote. He had seen their appreciation of that grace, but false teachers were calling his ministry into question. So instead of waiting till after his trip to Macedonia, which is what he originally told them he would do to, and then come to them, instead he went there first so that they could have that second experience of grace. That manifest grace would then nullify the claims of the false teachers that Paul was too weak or too sickly to be God's messenger. Something's wrong with him, they would say. He doesn't accept financial report. Perhaps he has another motive or realize he doesn't deserve it and excuses like that. But if Paul came, they would again experience the grace of God coming to them through his teaching. They'd be reminded of how God used him as an instrument of grace when he first came to them and spent that year and a half with them. Verse 16 and 17, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? So Paul's plan was to visit Macedonia and then go to Corinth and then winter there. And he said, if the Lord permits to have them send him on his way. They'd have another chance to express, uh, experience that grace 
and express that grace by helping to send him on to Jerusalem with the, with the gift for the church in Jerusalem to help the poor there. The language in Greek is unclear here whether they receive or give grace. And I think it's intentionally so because it's a mutual, it's a mutual thing. And Paul says in some of his letters that he, he wants to come to them so he can bless them and they can, he can receive the blessing from them. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as people who share in the different gifts that God gives us, we bless one another. Paul didn't have this mindset, I'm the great apostle and I'm coming to bless you all and I hope you all appreciate it. No, he realizes he's a part of the body and that when he is able to be an instrument of God through which they come to know God to a greater degree, he receives a blessing as well. So sometime in between this letter and the previous one, the Spirit must have moved him to come to them first because of those problems, hoping to express that grace. Perhaps Timothy had brought back word that the situation was worse than they thought. So when Paul changed his plan, his detractors were saying he vacillates back and forth. He said he was going to come in and spend the winter, but then he came before he went to Macedonia. Paul's defense is that it wasn't the, by the flesh that he changed his mind. It was because the leading of the Spirit. God was faithful to direct him. He asked them to recall that what he said in the past, he'd always done. He was a person of integrity, and that's why his preaching, though unimpressive by human standards, had power. Integrity lay at the heart of his apostolic ministry. Truth was the medium. Sincerity was the evidence. Grace manifested as power was the outcome. It seems that this short visit before going to Macedonia, instead of what he hoped for, an experience of grace, turned out to be full of contention. So Paul decided it was better to go on to Macedonia rather than to escalate the problem. If one can see that their presence isn't going to improve the situation, there are times when we retreat and leave things in God's hands to resolve the situation. It's a sign of trusting God more than trusting in yourself. And once things cool down and the Spirit has time to work on the hearts, another encounter might be more fruitful. Sexual sin was being ignored and debauchery was being justified by some in the church, perhaps under the excuse of freedom and grace. And their defiance had hardened some in the church against Paul. And so when he was there, that before he went to Macedonia, there was that contention. We don't know exactly what took place. Um, sometimes it may have just been one family who was connected to the sinful man. It may have been the church in his home. I've seen this happen numerous times where there's somebody who is uh, influential because of the finances that they give to a church. And the elders want to call out somebody they're connected to because of uh, sinful behavior that's starting to permeate the church. And all of a sudden factions form that I spoke of earlier where there's this contention trying to tear the church apart. 
So we'll see in the next chapter that Paul sent Titus to deliver this sorrowful letter rather than return in person. He was going to let the scripture that he shared with them, the theological reasons behind the need for them to address the problem, do the work because his physical presence just uh, ended up in contention. Titus was a Greek convert, probably had a much stronger presence than Timothy. The faction that was defending the sin was most likely a minority. Um, so Paul declares that that letter was to test and to see if the congregation would unite to discipline the blatant sin and to be obedient to what the Spirit was directing Paul through Paul for them to do. We're going to see in chapter 7, 6 through 13 that, that Titus reported back that for the most part, the congregation repented and acted on the Spirit's leading, and that was a great relief to Paul. Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul's critics were saying that he'd say one thing and do another. Before explaining why he didn't come, Paul reminds the Corinthians that God is always faithful. He can't be anything less than faithful, even when we are faithless. He doesn't promise something and change his mind. Paul's faithfulness to them is, was his clear presentation of the gospel. It wasn't based on his travel plans or whether he's led in a different direction than he assumed. God doesn't need to make an oath because his word is reliable. Paul doesn't make oaths either as Jesus taught that our yes should mean yes and our no should mean no. Paul was clear in saying that his plans were up to the Lord's will in the end of the first letter to the Corinthians. His critics attacks were being over Paul being led differently than what he first thought. But I imagine most of them did something like that every day, as most of us do. When people have a critical spirit, they need to remember that God judges others with the same harshness that we judge others. Verse 19 and 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that's why it's through him that we utter our amen for the glory of God. Christ is God's yes to all meaningful human hopes. Christ is God's yes to every human longing for life, wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification. But we should be mindful that God always speaks a no to every selfish and perverted longing of humanity, to every desire to get rich quick, to dominate others, or to organize society for selfish advantage. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, didn't play games with his words. He did not say one thing and, and the next day do something different. He never contradicted himself or the scriptures. For he is the word made flesh. Everything he said was from the Father, absolutely dependable, truthful, and righteousness. His word will remain even when heaven and earth pass away. You can absolutely count on them. 
Every promise of God finds its affirmation in, in him. And he's the fulfillment of most of the promises. Uttering their amen through him to the glory of God means that their agreement with everything that Jesus taught. And that brings God glory. For when we agree with the word of God and live accordingly, the likeness of Christ is seen in us. And that can only be done through Christ. After benedictions and that day, the congregation would say, Amen. It's a similar to saying, surely it is so. It's an affirmation that what was said is true and right. If they affirm that God is true, then they surely can affirm his messengers are true as well. If they affirm Paul's faithfulness to God in delivering the gospel to them, then they can surely know God is faithful to direct Paul in his travel plans as well. Paul's emphasizing that he doesn't say things lightly. The promise to come after visiting Macedonia was intentionally followed by Lord willing condition. 21 and 22, and it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Next, Paul describes his unity with them in Christ. He says, it is God who establishes them with him and his team in Christ. We don't stand firm by our own power or our own efforts. Whatever union we have with Christ is his ongoing work. If you came to Christ and were saved, it was the work of God in you. If you remain in him today, it's his ongoing work in your lives. The other things that God has done mentioned in this verse, all the rest of the things are in a verb tense that means they started in the past and continue to the present. And that includes he anointed us. It started in the past, it continues to the present. You know, priests in the Old Testament were anointed with oil. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit upon them to perform their assigned ministries. God wanted Israel to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, he wanted them to represent God to the world, but they failed miserably. Now God made a new kingdom of priests out of spirit-filled followers of Jesus. We are not anointed with oil, but with what the oil represents, the presence of the Holy Spirit upon us to express the gifts he has given us for building up the church and building up one another. The Holy Spirit also has sealed us with the ongoing effect that we continue to be sealed as God's own children, the guarantee of which is the Spirit in our hearts. The Greek word here translated guarantee is something like we would say uh, a down payment or first deposit. It's partial payment for the work to be done the balance of which is due upon completion. The scriptures tell us when Jesus returns, he will bring his reward with him. His work in us will be completed. Hallelujah. Amen. Our thoughts and our desires are continually influenced by the Holy Spirit rejecting ungodly thoughts and emotions while embracing that which aligns with the will of God. As wonderful as the Spirit's presence is in us, 
It's only a down payment of what is to come. Paul's telling them that even though some question his calling, they stand together, firm in Christ. Isn't it? I, I just sometimes, people have this idea that like, like they have a picture of God in the Old Testament as this harsh God. They have the same idea about Paul, that he's just this hard-nosed disciplinarian who's always in people's faces. But when you dig into how he's, he's been confronted and belittled and he's saying, I stand with you, you stand with me, the grace that Paul has for the Corinthians just pours through this letter. Uh, as we go on, you'll see it more and more about how much love he has for them. Paul's telling them that even though some question is calling, they stand together firm in Christ. They have the same Holy Spirit. They are sealed together as one body. And this is how we should see ourselves with all genuine followers of our Lord and Savior. How can you tell if they're believers? You can tell by their fruits. They have the fruit of the Spirit. You can often tell just by looking at them. There's something of a, a, a glow that radiates from people who are close to Christ. And you just, it's, it's tangible almost. In these few verses, we have seen the, the defense of a good conscience, the witness of manifest grace, the bond that we have with other believers, our reason for boasting being our relationship with God and how he's establishing us. Paul has defended his ministry to them because it's a ministry of the gospel, the unfailing word of God. Amen. Jill, would you close us in a song? And then I'll give the benediction.